This is your host and captain, Rick Jones, coming to you today from the bridge. On today's show, we're going to talk about how to get meetings, because here's the truth. Uh, In baseball, you won't get any hits unless you get to the plate. (laughs) And it's the same thing with sales. You've got to get in front of people to share your concepts. I've uh, sold literally millions of dollars in sponsorships over the years, but I've never sold any of them without a meeting or a series of meetings. Getting meetings is essential. As always, we're going to have another Tuesday tip and yet another segment of On the Road with Rick. And my guest angler and longtime friend Bob Kramer will join us today to talk about high school sports and his company, Huddle. So let's get right to it. I think sometimes we forget that we don't sell to companies, but rather we sell to human beings. Great corporate sponsorship programs are complex today. It's not like the old days when we sold specific assets like signs or tickets or hospitality. No, today we sell intellectual property and then the assets and ideas to activate around that IP. And that demands we get face-to-face with decision makers. Getting a meeting always starts with your credibility for bringing value. So the question you got to ask yourself today is, what is your reputation? And that reminds me of a story. Years ago, there was a situation comedy called Happy Days. And for some of you, you may not remember it, but for us old guys, we do remember it. And some of you may have seen it in syndication. Well, There was a character played by Henry Winkler called the Fonz, Arthur Fonzarelli, and he was kind of the hood and um, the greaser, the guy that got all the girls and had all the answers. And then the main character was a guy named Richie Cunningham. Richie Cunningham was played um, by Ron Howard. Ron Howard had been uh, Opie Taylor in the old Andy Griffith show. And later, Ron Howard grew up to be an Academy Award-winning director. Uh, But in this case, he played a character called Richie Cunningham, and there was a scene where some guy threatened to beat up Richie, and Fonzie taught him what to do, which was just to stand up on the table and raise his hands up, and the guy would be afraid and would run off. And, of course, the guy was not afraid, and Richie called a timeout and came out to the Fonz and said, this isn't working. Fonzie goes, oh, yeah, I forgot, Richie. You don't have a reputation. <laughs> and so uh, getting a reputation in sales, I think it's very, very critical. So I ask you again, what is your personal reputation? You know, sometimes what you sell is so good that the reputation of the property is enough to get you the meeting. Uh, some properties are so good that you simply become an order taker, but they're very rare and there are not many like that. And I haven't had the pleasure of selling many of those. If you're a young salesperson and work for an agency or an organization whose senior management has a reputation, again, that may be enough to get you a meeting. But uh, more than likely, that's not going to be enough. I'm fortunate that uh, I've been at this for a very long time and have built a reputation with those that I've previously sold to or those who know me well enough that I'm able to get a meeting. But I cannot rest on my laurels because I'm only as good as the next meeting. I have to bring insights and value to each and every meeting in order to ensure that I'll get the next meeting with that individual. So here's some tips about meetings. 
First of all, you got to understand you will meet people anywhere, anytime. And that means 24 hours, seven days a week. I have to tell you about meetings. Most of the time, they're inconvenient. (laughs) People don't work around your schedule. They work around their schedule. And you got to be able to do that. A second thing that I often do is I'll call and tell a little white lie. I'll call them and say, hey, Charlie, I'm going to be in your city next Tuesday. Uh, and thought maybe I could run by and see you. Well, the only way I'm going to be in Charlie City is if Charlie will see me next Tuesday. But it tells them that you're already there, and they don't feel like that they are inconveniently, uh, inconveniently, you know, hurting you or or you're spending money to come just to see them because they usually set it up with, "Hey, Rick, I don't have anything to buy right now. That's okay. You're just there to make the contact." I'm also a big believer in what I call unconventional contacts, and that's showing up places where key decision makers are. There's a very famous restaurant in Atlanta called the OK Cafe, and it's where all the power brokers eat breakfast. And so you can go to the OK Cafe pretty much any day, Monday through Sunday even, and find someone that you want to have a conversation with. I also will often attend conferences and conventions where key people will attend. And I don't bother people there, but I do introduce myself to them, give them a business card, ask for a business card, and then we'll call them at a later time. But it's a place to put a, a face to a name. I'm also a big believer in, in, in meals. Um, people have to eat. So I'm big on uh, breakfast, lunch, dinner meetings, drink meetings, uh, places that you can get them out of the comfort of their office. They get their, let their guard down a little bit. It's a little bit more casual, a little more conversational. Um, and so I'm big on doing that. And often I'll go to cities and have, you know, six or seven meals in the same day. Uh, obviously you got to eat very lightly if you do that, but, uh, I've been known to do that. And then often you give people or invite people to events. You give them tickets to events. We went to an event, Recently, which was the CMA Songwriter Series in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, and we had a number of uh, clients and prospects that we had given tickets to uh, and were able to visit with them uh, both pre- and post-concert. But what do you do when you don't know the person? What do you do when you have to go out and talk to a new prospect that you don't already have a relationship with? I rarely cold call anybody cold because usually you don't get any type of response and it's a wasted amount of time. I like to get an introduction from someone who knows both of us. And they'll say, hey, Charlie, you ought to talk to Rick Jones, smart guy, won't waste your time. You know, why don't you give him 15 minutes of your time? And the easiest way to find out who knows someone you want to get to know is to look on LinkedIn. Because there's a chain there. That's what the link is. It's the chain of people that are connected to other people. And you can see someone that knows you, that knows them, and utilize them to get and facilitate that introduction. Uh, I'm also big about referrals from an existing person in the same corporation. If you've got a friend that works there, that gives you instant credibility Hey, I want you to meet somebody. I think they'll help our business, not your business, but our business, which is a different thing. But of course, sooner or later, somebody's going to say, hey, how about sending me something? That literally happened to me last week where someone says, before I even have a phone conversation with you, Rick, can you send me some 
some reasons that I should do that. And that's where you send a quick and dirty email, um, you know, just a one pager and only a one pager that says who you are, what you got, where you want to take them, when you want to take them, and the customized conceptual idea for them, the why they should take the meeting with you, not why they should sponsor, but why they should take the meeting. You can also send some sort of an electronic deck that may have some video in it and some of that kind of stuff, but don't be surprised if those don't get go unopened. Uh, and so I like to send something that's really quick and to the point. And the whole idea of send me something is to sell the meeting. And the first thing you do in selling the meeting is you sell our common interest. We share some interest. We share some audiences. We share some things that uh, we should do together. I'm also a big believer in saying, hey, I've got some competitive information that may help your business. I may know something that's going on with a property that you're already involved with, or I may know something about your direct competitors and what they're doing. Remember the first meeting, though, is what we call the troll. We're trolling like in, like in fishing. You're out just looking at the landscape. This is where you're going to have a very, very broad discussion. Um, you're qualifying and narrowing their interest, and then you're spending a whole lot of time in discovery. I'm a big believer in that first initial meeting. You ask lots and lots and lots and lots and lots more questions. Because there's a reason God gave you two ears and two eyes and only one mouth. People like to talk about themselves, and so you need to let them because they'll give you the keys to the kingdom. And the idea of the first meeting is to get them interested in having the second meeting. And the second meeting is what we call casting, and that's where we're going to bring our initial thoughts to them from the discovery that we've already had. We're going to bring our proposal. Sometimes you can send along presentation materials in advance to get them excited about the meeting. Maybe that's a collateral or a newsletter, a link to web or social sites, uh, video links, maybe some testimonials from people that buy from you or are doing great things with you. Um, I send a lot of links to my podcast so that people understand that I have some credibility. In many cases, I'll send my book analog advice in a digital world to them in advance. People say, God, the guy's a published author. He must be legit. Um, they'll later find in the meeting that I'm not so legit, but we, we can fool them for a while. In other words, you've got to do whatever it takes to get you in front of the person that can buy from you. Again, you don't get any hits unless you get to the plate. Now, here's today's Tuesday tip. Remember, beauty fades, but dumb is forever. This little ditty is from my good friend and former boss, Chuck Jarvey. It's also the title of Judge Judy's autobiography. Chuck has been one of the most successful businessmen of his generation, is one of the most brilliant marketers of all time, and was always about 10 years ahead of trends for as long as I've known him. Intelligent people hang out with other intelligent people. There's a reason for that. Chuck graduated number two in his class at Cornell behind only a woman he was smart enough to marry, and that was Chuck's beautiful wife, Janet, who was one of the top reasons for his success. 
Have you noticed how many celebrity athletes and entertainers get into trouble because they continue to keep dumb people in their lives? Real winners only surround themselves with other very smart people. Now, I know you're a winner, so ask yourself, who are you hanging out with these days? And that's your Tuesday tip. My guest angler today is Bob Kramer. Bob is the Senior Vice President of Partnership Solutions for Huddle in Atlanta, Georgia. Huddle is one of the leading marketing firms to companies who want to reach the high school sports audience. They actually started in the ticket back business, and they literally can put your logo on millions of high school tickets. Bob has had an amazing professional career working for brands like MasterCard, Vitamin Water, and Coca-Cola before joining Huddle. He actually started his career as an intern at my agency a gazillion years ago. So let's welcome Bob to the bridge. Hey, Bob, welcome to the show. Thanks, Rick. Good to be here. Let's start off with a little recap of your career. I know you're an Ohio State Buckeye. And when you got out of school, you came, you were an intern at Advantage. Was that your first job right out of college, or did you do something before the internship? Well, actually, I graduated in the fall um, and actually got a job in sales uh, until I could go back to grad school, which I ultimately decided to do. And I was selling janitorial uh, supplies door-to-door to to maintenance men, uh, which was a rude awakening on telling me what I didn't want to do for a living. Yeah, that's a good good place to start, not a good place to finish. Right, exactly. But then I went, uh, actually one of my Ohio State professors uh, went down to Georgia Southern uh, to uh, really kind of revamp their sports management program. So um, I went down there thought process being that uh, the uh, Atlanta Olympic Games were a couple years away, so I figured there'd be a lot of internship and job opportunities in Atlanta. So I was kind of focused on um, going to Atlanta to get that opportunity, which ultimately went to work for your firm, the Strategic Group, as an intern. And then, uh, you know, timing is everything in in this world and and got hired on after my three-month internship. And then MasterCard reached out, and uh, they had been your client, um, and then you had a chance to go literally work there. Talk talk a little bit about that and what you did there. Yeah, so uh, that was interesting. When I came to Strategic Group, I was thinking for sure I'd be working on Olympic business, but ultimately worked on MasterCard's World Cup soccer uh, account, uh, which was great for me because I was a soccer guy and uh, became pretty close with the client. Um, after World Cup, did a, a stint on the BMW business, and then uh, as they were splitting their global and U.S. groups uh, apart, uh, they uh, were hiring uh, internal sponsorship experts, and, and uh, they called me up to New York and started my career on the client side, which was, uh, that was really where my career started to take off because um, it was certainly a high-profile role, but um, they were very well-funded and very committed to the sponsorship space, so um, I got a ton of learning um, during that time frame. I can remember um, I had gone to Europe and um, was working on the MasterCard business in in Europe, and uh, flew back uh, for a trip, and and drove up to purchase, and had the meeting. And as I left the the um, parking lot, I drove on the wrong side of the road. <laughs> 
<laughs> and then realized, Rick, you're not in England. You got to get over back here on the on the American side of the road. It was it was a crazy time, but but that was an interesting time to be at Mastercard because they were very innovative. Um, yes, they were, and uh, interestingly enough, too, they a lot of people didn't know this, but uh, Visa and Mastercard were nonprofit associations, um, which. When you're running a business that has a ton of cash and you're nonprofit, um, you, you tend to spend a, a fair amount of money. Um, so, uh, but the interesting part of my time there, from a marketing standpoint, is that they were still the marketing department was run by bankers, and uh, they brought it. They started to bring in consumer packaged goods marketers, and that really kind of transformed how uh, Mastercard was looking at the marketplace. And they really didn't have an identity. Um, if you recall, Amex and Visa, Visa was every, everywhere you want to be, and, and Amex was about, you know, cachet and, and kind of catering to the affluent and the business cardholders. Um, but MasterCard really didn't stand for anything. And that was a difficult to uh, go out to the marketplace from a sponsorship standpoint when you didn't really have an identity. And I think what changed uh, back in 97 was the launch of the Priceless campaign. Um, and that really kind of gave everybody a rallying cry on, on how to communicate uh, to the marketplace. Yeah, we've talked a little bit about that uh, ad campaign and, and that whole thing. You know, I like to remind my <clears throat> listeners that work for not-for-profits that that's a designation and not a goal. Uh, <laughs> you, know, you, you know, it's a tax designation. Please don't think you don't need to make money. Well, then, then you had a chance to jump in a really innovative place, um, when you went over to Glasso and worked on vitamin water and some of their other products, talk, talk about that, that, that had to be really a crazy time. Yeah, it really was. And, uh, what was great for, for me is that they were, um, in May of 07, they were purchased by Coca-Cola for $4.1 billion. Um, but for the first 18 months after that acquisition, they operated as a wholly owned independent subsidiary. So when I got there in December, uh, you know, six or seven months after the uh, transaction went down, it was still the the old Glasso culture run by the the leaders that that got to that business to where where it uh, where it got to, and, and it was really great because it was very entrepreneurial. Um, uh, I think, as I mentioned to you before, Rick, um, you know, typical CPG companies, you know, they have their brand management groups that really kind of protect and own the brands. Well, there, no matter if you were in finance or if you were the mail, the mailroom guy, or, or the sponsorship guy, everybody owned the brand and kind of rallied behind that, uh, which made it a really kind of a, a really special environment. Um, and they had a strategy, uh, Vitamin Water for Sports Marketing, where they actually partnered with athletes who became, you know, vested in owners in the company. So instead of paying athletes your typical cash endorsement deals, um, they got um, stock in, in the company and. And became owners of the company and really brand ambassadors uh, across the country. So it was a, uh, it was a really great time. Great strong brands, and and they continue to thrive on, under Coca Cola's management today. Well, that led you to then having a chance to to come to Atlanta and 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 work uh, deeper in Coke uh, on sports marketing. Uh, projects. Um, you did some really innovative things like uh, Coke Zero and Game Day, and and a number of other things. Talk <clears throat> talk about your experience with uh, the world's largest uh, manufacturer of carbonated sugar water. Yeah. So it was interesting in that you know I came ten years from from Mastercard, so I kind of knew how the corporate world worked. But a lot of the folks at Class O were entrepreneurs and startup type um, people who hadn't really worked for a big company. So when Coke uh, finally came in and started to integrate Glasso into 
Coca-Cola North America, um, I became uh, uh, kind of a key person because I could I could kind of relate to to how they thought and, and their their thought process, their language. Um, so I uh, I kind of helped with that integration from a sponsorship standpoint, and then ultimately got more involved in the brands down in Atlanta. And um, you know by then in my tenure there, I uh, was, was running the sports marketing group for for North America, which was great. They they're obviously associated with some of the premier. Um, partners out there and um you know they they execute better than better than most if not the best well you've worked on pretty much every facet of sports marketing you've worked uh you know with big 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 global entities like the olympics and and the world cup you've worked on uh athletes with people like vitamin water you've worked on the ncaa and college sports and other things with Coke, but now you find yourself in a, in a new challenge, uh, which is really marketing high school sports in a unique way. You're now at Huddle. Talk a little bit about that company, your role, and what you're trying to do there. Yeah, so um, I first kind of got exposed to that space beyond being a high school athlete myself when I was uh, working on the Powerade business. Um, and their number one objective is to recruit high school athletes and, and do that through trainers and coaches and athletic directors. So when I discovered Huddle, uh, I was amazed at the at the scale and penetration that they've accumulated over the last 20 years through their ticket back program. Simple business concept. They um, go out to high schools and, and, and offer them to print high quality um, tickets for free. Um, deliver value-added brand offers to their fans and ship them out. And uh, they've accumulated uh, over 10,000 high schools business. Um, they've, they're in 50 states, 204 DMAs. And they've used that trust uh, with the schools to expand other product offerings that brands can actually use to go and provide more value to their to their students and, and administrators. So um it's interesting, you know, in the sponsorship business, your goal is to connect passion to people and people have a lot of passion for high schools, but the challenge has been is very hard to navigate. It's very fragmented, very localized. And the fact that Huddle has scaled uh, the business in this space, it's kind of the next frontier in terms of how you commercialize um, sponsorship within within the high school vertical, because uh, obviously collegiate has been commercialized over the years and certainly pro is mature at this point, but I think high school is the next, the next <clears throat> frontier and that's what I'm really excited about. So my role here at Huddle is uh, I run a group that supports the corporate sales team. So the corporate sales team is outselling that value proposition to corporate America and we're helping them uh, ideate, deliver against brands objectives, develop um, proposals, develop concepts and execute all the programs that the brands are are buying into. So it's, uh, it's been great. And I have a unique advantage of having been on the brand side for so long. I kind of understand how they think so we can actually deliver what they're looking for. Well, I, I remember years ago, I had a good friend, Roy Spence, who uh, founded GSDNM advertising down in Austin, Texas. And at one time they had the Walmart business. And he said that his agency was all about niche marketing and he, he loved Walmart's niche. Uh, about 92% of all Americans. Uh, you, you got close to 98% of all Americans when you think about it. Uh, that's a heck of a niche if you can figure out a way to, to scale it and drive it down to each and every high school and each and every high school athlete, coach, parent, uh, fan. Um, that's the challenge, isn't it? 
It is a challenge, and it's a big challenge. Um, but uh, schools are very receptive to to us as partners. They're looking for people to not only offset costs, but to help them figure out how to monetize all the value that they have in front of them. Um, historically, they're not all that sophisticated, so people who actually have the experience doing that are going to be welcomed uh, in schools as long as you're driving value for them. Well, that's um, a very exciting time. I, I told somebody the other day um, – it reminds me of where college sports was 25 years ago. Um, and, you know, but you're able to apply key learnings that you you saw in the collegiate space back to high schools, which is really about how do you extract value uh, and how do you better engage fans for a long time. And I got to believe that the change in our ability from a digital and social perspective to keep people engaged with a high school longer maybe than they had in previous generations is something that you're going to try to exploit. Yeah, there's no question. I mean, the the business was started with a a paper ticket concept, but we've already expanded into a digital offering, which is really going to be the kind of the next big thing that we're going to be taking out to the marketplace. But, you know, in terms of how you communicate the uh, streaming. We have actually a, a company that's uh, owned by the same investment group that owns us. That's actually streaming high school games across, you know, all girls and boys sports. And uh, they're the only one that's really doing that at scale, certainly. So, um, and then there's a lot of interest. If you're not able to go to a game or if you're trying to track your competition, there's an easy way that you can go consume that content. So I think uh, the digital transformation and the, and the, the value of, of high school content is really going to be something that's going to take off. You know, I also think, Bob, that um, with these early signings, you know, where high school kids can sign before their senior year, um, that, that's, I think that's going to help you grow your fan base. You know, if I know a great, you know, point guard is now signed and he's going to be at uh, North Carolina next year, you might want to follow him differently uh, if you're a North Carolina fan. Um, and, and I think we're going to see now that football's done the same thing, uh, I think there's going to be a, a renewed interest in what's coming next uh, and, and, you know, our ability to follow that particular student athlete uh, through the remainder part of his high school career into college. Yep, you're absolutely right. And we actually sell – promotional concepts around signing day in schools, which is a great way for brands to kind of celebrate these athletes who are going on to the next thing. Well, I'm a proud graduate of Avondale High School in DeKalb County right there in Atlanta. Uh, interesting fact, in a, in a state that's just rabid about college and high school football, uh, from 1950 to 1980, and I'm dating myself now, but from 1950 to 1980, Avondale High School won more high school football games than any other school in the state of Georgia. We were a definitive powerhouse, uh, but times changed. The, uh, the neighborhood turned a little bit, and it's now, I think, the school of the arts uh, there in DeKalb County, where at one time it was a, it was a huge uh, football power. And I still think fondly of my days at Avondale, and I think everybody does. They look back and remember their times in high school. And, and so I think the things you're doing at Huddle are, are very, very exciting. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I, I'm having a lot of fun. And, again, 
it's a smart marketing move for brands to play in high school, but certainly everybody can relate to that emotional connection that they had from their days in high school. And, and that, that helps in the, in the sales process as well. Well, that's good stuff, Bob. We really thank you today for joining us from the bridge. All right. Thanks, Rick. Great talking to you. It's now time for On the Road with Rick. My wife, Charlotte, loves onion rings, and I mean, she loves onion rings, and she's on a mission to find the greatest onion rings ever across America. But so far, her favorite onion rings are not onion rings at all. They're actually onion strings at Mustard's Grill in Napa, California. Mustard's is a cool place. It's an upscale roadhouse on the... uh, St. Helena Highway coming out of Napa. Uh, They got fabulous food. Everything there is made from scratch. They have a wood-burning grill that turns out wonderful meat, seafoods, and grilled vegetables, including some amazing barbecued ribs. Mustard's uh, Grill is named for the wild mustard flowers that grow in the area. They've been open over 30 years. And as you can imagine, in Napa, they have an amazing, really fabulous wine list. But it's those onion strings that will bring you back time after time. Napa is now full of world-class restaurants, but you don't want to miss this one, Mustard's Grill. So that's our show for today. Let us hear from you, and please pass information about the show to others you know in the event marketing business. We'll see you again soon from the bridge. This has been your captain, Rick Jones, from The Bridge. If you like what you hear, please share, subscribe, and leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast directory. Everybody wants me to be what they want me to be. But I can't be nobody else but me. Yeah. <laughs>